Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Amen. May the Lord bless you and you can be seated. I'm going to take my text this evening from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter uh, number 7. Ecclesiastes 7. And um, this is from the writings of Solomon. We have several different places that Solomon speaks to us from, whether that is in the book of Proverbs or the book of Ecclesiastes or in the Song of Solomon. And each and every one of them in their own right, very powerful words that speak to our heart. Amen. There's just something about youth. It's a joy many times. As a matter of fact, a moment ago in our service, I was watching Mr. Jake as he got into the spirit of worship. Amen. He looked up and he saw Brother Jerry with his hand on his face. In a few moments, moments he put his hand on his face. And it's just something about children. They are innocent in so many, many respects. And I understand that not everyone's childhood was innocent. But there is a train of thought that the average child is wrapped in a sense of wonder. We've often heard it said that you can buy a child a toy and they would rather play with the package that it came in. The toy seems to define the fun, but the package leaves room for them to do all sorts of things with it and use their imagination. And that sort of gives birth to the phrase, oh, the innocence of childhood, the innocence of childhood. In one of his poems, Thomas Gray pictured... Um, drew a, a word picture, of, so to speak, of, of children playing in a field or perhaps a setting similar to that. And in their innocence of what lie ahead, he said, alas, regardless of their doom, the little victims play. No sense have they of the ills to come, nor care beyond today. They're just locked in the moment. Right now, this is all that matters. And so they keep themselves in the cocoon of the safety of just that day. And his conclusion in, uh, in the matter of speaking is very logical. At that stage of life, it is far better to be somewhat ignorant and happy because there's plenty of time ahead, chances are, for them to experience the sorrows that knowledge will bring when you learn certain things in life, certain truths in life. Uh, that is to say that sometimes the bubble can be burst. And Solomon had come to a similar conclusion when he, when he argued in Ecclesiastes 1. And uh, you can find many passages of scripture, but here in the first chapter, in the opening, the beginning, and this is Ecclesiastes of Solomon at the end of his life, where he is looking back in a rare, very, very reflective manner. I want to tell you that the book of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes is a tremendous book to read, a tremendous book to read. 
And so Solomon comes to a conclusion that, that wisdom didn't make life worth living. Nothing that you can have or things doesn't make life worth living. Nothing you could garner in life. He, he called it all vanity and vexation of the spirit. And here is a man who was probably, well, no doubt, I would say not even probably, here was a man who was the most well-versed person to speak on the subject of having things. Whatever his mind could imagine, whatever money could buy, whatever power or authority could bring his way, he had tasted from that side of the cup. And at the end, he said, it is all, it is all vexation of the spirit and vanity. In verse 18, he said, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now, he is not implying that ignorance is bliss, but he is certainly underlining the, truth, the true fact that the more you know, the more you're responsible for. And so life brings with it knowledge, and that knowledge brings with it responsibility. And so when we didn't know better when we were children, our parents would probably give us a little latitude. But when those words came, you knew better. <laughs> sort of indicting. It's sort of indicting. It sounds a little dark and gloomy when Solomon says, for in much wisdom is, is much grief. And, and if you increase in knowledge, then you increase in sorrow. But there is a measure of truth to that. When you take, however, a second look at the problem uh, Solomon seems to change his point of view in his writings and, and that brings us to Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. And he, he discusses the importance of wisdom in life and, I, and we have to understand his mood and his feeling as he writes. But as he begins to write reflectively upon his life, he begins to change somewhat the complexion or the tone of his words. The word wisdom is found some 14 times in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, as a matter of fact, I believe it's about six or seven times it's mentioned in the first ten verses of chapter 7. Solomon concluded that though wisdom can't explain all of life's mysteries, it can certainly make positive contributions to our life. He says things like, for who knoweth what is good for a man in this life? Who, who can tell what is good? Who can look beyond tomorrow? We can't see around the corner but I believe that wisdom can certainly help make life better. Amen. I am very thankful for the wise people that have made investments in my life. Amen. I'm very thankful for wisdom that has been shared. I'm thankful that in a, high, in a moment of height and confusion, a moment, of, uh, a, a moment of storm, they have a voice that can be affirming and give a word that can be sure. And so I want to talk this evening about the fact that it's better to be wise. In, if you were to read Ecclesiastes 7, it would become clear that the word better is a key word in this chapter. Solomon uses it again and again and again. And so as we read through these passages, we can be somewhat or could be somewhat dismayed by some of the things that Solomon describes because it seems adverse to how our conversation would be or what our train of thought would be. Maybe an example of that would be the first four verses of Ecclesiastes 7. He said, A good name is, is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to, the, to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. 
for that is the end of all men, and the living will lie it to his heart. He says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. That just seems backwards, doesn't it? If I were to read that again just a little bit slower, he said that the day of, of, of a person's death is better than the day of a person's birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. And so we think about those things, and that is completely the opposite of how we may feel about that. In the, four, in the first four verses, he begins to talk about things that just seem contrary to our common train of thought. If given a choice, and I say this with great deference to this past weekend, but if given a choice, most people would certainly rather go to a birthday party than to a memorial service. However, Solomon is advising against that. And so when something doesn't make sense in Scripture, let me just throw this out. It's, it's not time for us to just brush that aside. But when something doesn't make sense, it's time to dig a little bit deeper into that and find the sense of that. Why would Solomon say that it would be better to celebrate this day than that day? Amen. Why would sorrow be greater than laughter? Because he understood that sorrow, sorrow can bring us to a place of soberness. Sorrow can bring us to a place of awareness in the spirit world. The word heart is used four times in these verses. And Solomon was certainly not a pessimistic man. Solomon was not a doomsdayer. He's not a doom and gloom kind of, of, of guy. Solomon, it was King Solomon that wrote, that wrote Proverbs 15 and 13, a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. So this is not, this is not Solomon portrayed in a bad way. In, in Proverbs 15 and 15, he said, he that is of a merry heart had the continual feast. And if I should show there, mention that Solomon was also the author of the Song of Solomon. So it is clear from the writings of Solomon that he was not a negative doomsday kind of person. But what is it then that Solomon is driving at? What is this awkward approach that he seems to be taking toward life? He's not certainly speaking against joy and certainly not speaking against laughter, but he's clearly pointing out the pronounced effects of laughter versus sorrow. Laughter can be like a medicine, the writer said, that heals the broken heart. Amen. That's why he penned the words of Proverbs 17, 22, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. So this is not a man talking out of both sides of his mouth. This is not a man confused at all, but he understood that sorrow can be a nourishment that strengthens the inner man. It going through some things in life, I believe that we could perhaps say it another way, that there have been many blessings of God in our life and many times of rejoicing and perhaps some of those have eluded us. They have escaped us. But there have been times of sorrow where God had proven himself to be God and those moments are forever etched and they're burned in our heart, in our life. Amen. I'm going to tell you that there are seasons of my life that I can give you dates, amen, days, months, and years. Amen. Seasons of our life that are so implanted and embedded in our heart. Amen. So sorrow can be a nourishing food because it was in those times of sorrow 
that God had proven himself again and again and again. In the truest sense, it takes both of them. It takes laughter and sorrow, amen, for a balanced life. But so often people cannot understand that and they don't realize that a wonderful thing in life is the balance, balance. Amen, some would assume that life is nothing more than just a continual party, but nothing could be further from the truth. And I'm certainly not implying that life is nothing but continual sorrow, but there is a balance of both as we walk through life. Amen, while there is a time to laugh, according to Ecclesiastes 4, in that same verse, he said, and a time to mourn. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. And so you find this consistent and continual balance in the word of God. Looking back at our text, consider Solomon's bizarre statement that that the day of one's death would be better than the day of one's birth. It seems hard to rationalize. Amen. Very, very hard to rationalize because I've been present for both. We need to look at this opening statement. He said, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, if you study this passage of Scripture, there is somewhat a play on words, and just forgive my vernacular there, but somewhat a a play on words because Solomon is not really contrasting birth and death, nor is he suggesting that it is better to die than it is to be born because obviously you can't die unless you've been born. Solomon was contrasting two significant days in our human experience. As a matter of fact, two very significant days. The day that a person receives their name, amen, and their lives begin, amen, and, I, and then, of course, the day uh, that is their last day. I'm, I'm sure that many of you, if not most of you, have heard this reference, but nonetheless, it bears repeating. It's not the first date on a, it's not the first date that matters or the last date that really matters, but it's really what we do with the time in between. It's really what we do with that little dash as it has been referred to, the dash in the middle. Because that little dash in the middle, that is the summary of what truly will make all the difference in, a wor- in this world. If a person leaves this world with a good name, their reputation is sealed and that family has no need to worry. Because every time that name comes up in conversation, it is going to garner a smile. It is going to give birth to a memory. And that will be a treasure that a family just cannot buy with mere money. Amen. The value of a good name. I'm telling you that there have been many, many times that I thought at the end of someone's life how wonderful it would be to realize that their name was untarnished. That somehow through all of the ups and downs of life, they have been able to weave and bob their way around the obstacles to preserve their reputation. What a wonderful thing to be treasured beyond rubies. Amen. That's why he says that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Is because when life is over, that's when our reputation is settled. The ancient adage says this, everyone has three names. Everyone has three names. One their parents gave them, one others call them, and the one they acquire for themselves. Amen. They have the name their parents gave them, they have the name that others call them, and then they have the name that they have garnered and acquired 
for themselves. Proverbs 10 and 7 says, The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. The same book, the same writer, chapter 22 and verse number 1, the Bible says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. We think of great names throughout Scripture. Well, we could begin in Genesis and we could certainly go all the way to the last book of the Bible. But I'm going to tell you, I'm thankful for those names, the people that have just, their lives have gone down in history and they have become a solid foundation for us to build our lives upon. For instance, Mary of Bethany, she anointed the Lord's feet with a very, very expensive perfume. And a result, as a result of that one instance, its fragrance filled the house. And Jesus told her something very, very significant in that passage of Scripture. I know we spent a lot of time talking about the alabaster box being broken. And we've talked a lot about the value of the oil that was in that box. We've talked a lot about the fragrance that was, that was released into that room. Amen. But Jesus told her something significant. He told her, he said, your name is going to be honored throughout all the ages. Your name is going to be honored out throughout the world. And it is. Amen. Your name is going to be honored. And so it's hard to think of Mary of Bethany without realizing that she was the one that gave all at the feet of Jesus, a name that is forever etched in our mind. Contrasting that, we find Judas who sold Jesus Christ to the hands of the enemy and his name is generally despised. Amen, when we think of Judas generally, our minds doesn't go, don't go to positive things, but we think about him being the one that betrayed when Judas was born, he was given this name. He was named after Judah, which meant praise. Amen, it belonged to the royal tribe of Israel. And so when he was named, he started out well. But by the time Judas died, he had turned that honorable name into a very shameful name. In verses two, three, and four, Solomon advised the people to look death in the face and learn something from it. There's a lesson to be taught he didn't say that we should be preoccupied with it, but he's, I think that would be not only unhealthy but abnormal. But there is a danger that Solomon was pointing out that you can miss some things in life if you try to avoid this. Amen. You need to confront the reality of it and don't try to slight it in any way or have a disdain for it. Amen. We may not take life as seriously as we should if we don't realize that there is an ending. Amen, that's why men, like David said, shocking things, things that we would do well to remember, things like Psalms 90 and 12. It's here where Moses said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Some of you may remember a video that we shared several years ago or a few years ago about marbles. I think the title of the video is A Thousand Marbles. And so the, the, the point of it all is if you were to have a marble for every day of your life and if every day when you woke up you took one marble out of one bowl and you put it into another bowl, you could see what was really would be a, a true barometer or meter in our life about our day. As we moved a marble 
every day from one bowl to the next bowl, it would be a reminder that I've got to make well of my time. I've got to do everything that I possibly can to get everything out of this day. It would certainly help us to prioritize our days. And so Moses wasn't being morbid. Moses wasn't being unkind or unthoughtful, but he was saying, Lord, teach us to number our days. You know, I've, I've read somewhere where you can actually put this in. Uh, there's some sort of a meter online, and if it's online, you know it has to be true. I don't know if I'm quite brave enough to plug in all the information that it would be necessary to, to put a countdown clock in my, in my own life. But in, in essence, that's what Moses was saying. Lord, teach us to number our days. Something I think that, that I should make here, clear this evening is Solomon is not presenting us truly with an either-or situation, but Solomon is really reaching for balance, that we should balance ourselves between these two points of contact. While I believe that it is certainly healthy to have laughter and humor in our life, Humor has helped me through a lot of things in my life. Amen. I gotta be I gotta beware. I've gotta beware of frivolous, being frivolous and silly in my heart and my life. Amen. So we need that balance. If you met some people, they can do nothing but laugh, and some people have never cracked a smile. But Solomon is saying we need to find balance. There's a time and a season for all that. There's a place for healthy humor in our life. But I've got to beware that I do not allow that to run amok. Amen. That I would be found, as he said in verse number four, found in the house of myrrh. Amen. Beware of frivolous laughter that is found in the house of feasting. Amen. In this sense, Solomon said that the house of mourning should be preferred to the house of feasting. That is, in other words, sober reflection should be preferred rather than just being so lighthearted till we just try to mock and laugh our way through life. There are some times that we've got to get real and we've got to sit down and take a long look inside. Solomon was not in the business of trying to crush anyone's dreams and he was certainly not trying to paint everybody's world gray. Nothing could be further from the truth, but he was driving home a much larger picture, a long and a serious, a truthful and honest look into our lives can lead to moral improvement. Amen. When we just let the Spirit of God, the reflective nature of God's Word to shine in our hearts, God is not present tonight to condemn us. He's not present tonight to belittle and beat us down to dust before we leave this building. And so whatever the Spirit of God may reveal in our heart is not to make us worse, but it is to make us better. Amen. The preaching of the word of God, amen, while it ought to rebuke and it ought to inform and it ought to encourage and it ought to instruct, amen, those things ought to make us realize I've got to take a deeper look into my heart and I've got to do some things about that. Anybody ever gone to the doctor and the doctor give you your cholesterol report and says you're here and you need to be here? Now you can say that man was my enemy or that woman was my enemy or you can realize they are looking out for our best interest. Amen. I told you several years ago, it's been almost seven years ago now, when I turned 50, I was at my doctor for a checkup and he said he took out a little piece of paper and a pencil and then he drew zero and a little scale that went up to 50 and he wrote 50 in a line. He said almost anybody can live the first 50. 
And he took another little line and he went up from 50, another 50 to 100. I thanked him for being so generous. But he said, it's this 50. It's the second 50. That's where it gets tough. That's where you got to be careful. You can do almost anything you want to do and make the first 50. And we've watched that happen in our own lives. Amen? But we got to make sure that we take a long look in our heart and our life and realize that if I'm going to be spiritually healthy, I've got to let the word of God be honest with me. Amen, amen, amen. And so looking back at the psalm that David, or that rather that Moses wrote, he's not asking the Lord to teach us to number our days so that we can be sad. We're not, he's not asking the Lord to do that because he has some morbid affection. Amen. It is a request for the Lord to help us to be sober about the reality of life. Teach us to number our days. And then he says, why? That we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach me, Lord, to number my days that I might be wise about what I'm doing with my days. Our present day society, which emphasizes such self-indulgence, if it feels good, do it. If it's something that we want to do, we just let all, all, the, all the laws go and we just reach out. But our present day society desperately needs to heed this passage of Scripture. Lord, teach us to number our days that our hearts may gain wisdom. Of course, this, is, this isn't the only thing that Solomon says in this passage that doesn't seem to line up with today's thinking. In verses five and six, he said, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This, he said, is also vanity. And so he says, rebuke is better than praise. Well, that just seems kind of contrary to our thinking. Because we would much rather somebody praise us than rebuke us. But Solomon compared the praise of fools to burning thorns in a campfire. He said you can, and if you've ever burned thorns or weeds of any, any sort, then you know what Solomon's referring to. You can burn those thorns and it makes a lot of noise, but it don't really produce a lot of heat. It's just a noise for a little while. You can hear a lot of noise, but you're not going to get a lot of lasting good from that. And so, if, But if we allow a, a wise person to rebuke us, amen, that's going to accomplish far more in our lives than the flattery of fools will accomplish. You need to be very, very careful who you allow to pat you on the back because they may pat you on the back right over the edge of the cliff to your own demise. Amen, we would be much, much better off to have the rebuke of somebody wise, a voice in our life that says, no, 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 you don't need to go there. You need to be careful. Amen, it may hurt for a little while, but if it preserves our life in the end, that will be much, much better than the flattery of fools. Amen. Solomon may have learned this truth from his father because in the 141st Psalm, David said, let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head. Amen. So Solomon must have been learning something from that wise father that he had. 
because David said, let a righteous man smite me and that'll be the kindest thing that he could ever do. I mean, you can pour your heart out to someone, but if we are really looking for counsel, we don't need to just lay our proposition on the table and then already have a ready answer in our heart and our mind. But we need to let a word of God come through the voice of God and through the voice of his man or his of that person of the hour. Amen. David said, let a righteous man smite me and let him reprove me and it will be kindness and it will be excellent oil and it will not break me, but it will build me. Amen. Amen. He certainly emphasized that when he wrote the book of Proverbs. Solomon said, he that refuses reproof erreth. He that hateth reproof in 12 and 1, he said, he that hateth reproof is brutish. In Proverbs 15 and 5, he said, a fool despises his father's instructions. And in Proverbs 25 and 12, he said, as an earring of gold and an ornament of fine of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is the wise reprover upon the obedient ear. Amen. No, sometimes can be the safest word we have ever heard in our life. No. Maybe thinking about rebuke, reproof, maybe that conjures up some moment in your life I know the word rebuke sort of just seems so barbed and so blunt until sometimes it's a little bit off-putting. But, but when we think about the times that someone has corrected us, and I want to I be very real tonight. I'm not talking about correcting us when we were children. I'm talking about times when we've been corrected as adults. When somebody didn't just agree because we were friends. Amen. Somebody spoke a word of truth into our life. And no matter how hard it was to swallow that pill, we understood that they were doing that for our own good. I've mentioned this through the years, and I don't say this loosely, nor do I say it lightly. But I'm thankful for the accountability partners that I have in my life. And incidentally, my wife knows them by name and she has their cell phone numbers. But I've heard on the other end of the phone trusted voices that said, Brother Boyd, you were wrong about that and you're going to need to correct that. Man, I would love to tell you that I just started speaking in tongues. But you either trust or you don't. Amen. And I'm thankful for that word of rebuke because it put me back on the right path. Because at best we are human. At the very best. We are subject to error. But I'm thankful for God's redemptive hand redemptive hand now there's many other proverbs that we could list but I'll just conclude with that if we drop down to verses 7, 8 and 9 in Ecclesiastes Solomon says this he says surely oppression maketh 
a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Wow. So what Solomon is saying is sometimes the long way around is better than the shortcut. Sometimes the long way is better than the short way. I remember one time my wife and I were way before the days of GPS, but we were traveling to a place we had never been before and we needed to make up some time and I looked on the map and we could go this way or we could go this way. And it just made sense to go this way. Except this way on the map was very deceiving. Because it was filled with mountain roads of hairpin turns. And you ever been on those curves where you could go around the curve and check your taillights at the same time? <laughs> See if your tag was in date. That was one of those roads. Not only were we almost green with nausea by the time we got where we were going late. But we found out that the long way would have been much easier than the short way. And so we have to beware sometimes of the easy route because sometimes the detours can be very, very expensive and they can be very painful. As a matter of fact, they can be deadly. Bribery just seems to be a a quick answer. We'll just bribe our way. We'll make our way to the top. But you see, bribery will only turn a wise man into a fool. And it encourages corruption that's already in the human heart. It is there. Recently, if you've been following the news, we have read of many, several famous actors and actresses and very, very wealthy people who have been indicted for bribery by paying for their children to earn their way to top-tier colleges. They have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for 4.0 grade averages because they're trying to bribe their way to the top. Now, in great deference, if one of your favorite actors or actresses has, happens to be caught up in this, I will say from my heart, they deserve what they get. Because while they're greasing the palms of some slimy person that'll take that, somebody's eating sardines and potted meat trying to earn it. Amen. How sad. A moment, a very teachable moment in their children's life. And they said, let us show you a shortcut. And before this is over, it's going to be a long, long way around. For one thing, already their name has been soiled, their reputation. And some of them have very good reputations. How sad. Far better to wait patiently and humbly for God to work out his will than to just somehow try to take some shortcut 
across the way. It just doesn't work that way. I want to ask you to stand, if you will. Amen. <clears throat> we can get angry and demand our own way. But Solomon said, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Brother uh, Bishop Ellis Myers, he and his wife have, have been here before and, and taught some of our leaders in the church and also been here for that same weekend preaching our service on Sunday. Some months ago, we were together with the elder brother and sister Myers and and Brother Myers' mother lived to be well up in her mid, maybe even to late 90s. So we were riding down the road together and they were talking about, Sister Myers in particular was talking about her mother-in-law and she, her wit and wisdom. She said, my mother-in-law, she just had so many little one-liners and she said so many of them I've committed to memory. But she said one that really stands out. And she shared it with me and I, I've never forgotten it. She said, I have lived long enough to see the end of a lot of beginnings. Just take that home. I've lived long enough to see the end of a lot of beginnings. Some things that came out of the gate so strong, so powerful. This is going to be it. But somewhere along the line, it just snuffed out the end of a lot of beginnings. But Solomon said, better is the end of a thing than the beginning of a thing. So it is better to begin and end well than it is to just begin well and end horribly. The beginning of sin leads to a horrible end, which James called it death. But if we have God at the beginning of what we do, he will see to it that we reach the end and we reach it successfully. Amen. And that's why we can claim Romans 8 and 28 because we know that God is at work in the world and that no matter what we encounter, and I did say no matter what we encounter, God can turn that and take it if we commit it into his hands. And I'm going to tell you that more than a handful that are in this building tonight have stood on the firm foundation of Romans 8 and 28 and you stood in the middle of a mess and you've wondered what good could possibly come out of this but you live long enough to watch the hand of God take that and turn it all around and we were all left with wow moments when we watch what God can do with the end of a thing. Amen. God is accomplishing his purpose and and it made no sense for Joseph to be in a pit. And it made no sense for him to be in a jail. And it made no sense for him to be accused. But God said better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Because if you'll just hang on, Joseph, I'm taking you somewhere. And, and as it says in the New Testament that, that, that uh, the Lord always saves that best for last, that best one. I will leave one final verse, and that's Ecclesiastes 7.10. He said, Say not thou what is the cause of the former days were better than these? What is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. And so here's the bottom line. When life is difficult and when, when we are impatient for a change, it's easy to long for the good old days. You ever been there? Sure. We've, we've all 
at some point in our lives, long for the good old days. If you remember in Scripture, in the book of Ezra, when the foundation was laid for the second temple, remember that? The old men wept for the good old days while another generation was just praising God that the temple was being rebuilt. And so they missed the miracle of what was happening today because they were mourning yesterday. And so we got to be very, very careful that we don't fall in that trap. It's been said that the good old days are a combination of bad memory and a good imagination. <laughs> and that is often true, often true. Yesterday has passed and we can't go back there. Tomorrow has not come, so I must make the most of today. Amen. I must make the most of today. Aren't you thankful we're alive today? And we can do something for the Lord today. Amen. Let's commit this word to our hearts. Shall we, Lord, I love you today. And I thank you for the power of your spirit and the power of your word. And I'm asking you tonight, God, to just honor, just honor. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.